If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. And it's an interesting uh, story in, in this whole COVID-19 saga is understanding kids and coronavirus. Kids are not immune to coronavirus, um, but there, there seem to be a lot fewer cases involving kids and not a lot of cases of kids spreading it to others. And so why is it then the kids don't seem impacted as impacted by this virus that can have a very serious impact, uh, certainly as we've seen? And how does that shape then the conversation around getting kids back to school and other activities? countries like Taiwan and South Korea, you know, kids wear masks, there's dividers in in class, plastic, uh, you know, dividers. Does that need to be incorporated? Can we just go back to business as usual in schools? Well, uh, joining us for some further thoughts uh, on these important questions, uh, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Jim Kellner. He's a pediatrician and subspecialist in pediatric infectious diseases. He's a professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary, Cummings School of Medicine. Dr. Kellner, great to talk to you here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. It's uh, good to be here. Thank you. Let's start with that question of, you know, understanding kids and and this virus, Um, because with a lot of other diseases, kids can really be vectors for infection, but something seems different here. Do do we know what that is or why? So so we have hints of it, but we don't know for sure. Um, It's certainly different with this than it is with other big epidemics and pandemics that have mostly been related to influenza. When it's influenza, we know that children not only um, are important vectors, but can get sick very often themselves. And so that sort of makes sense to us, that they they do both get sick and are vectors. Here, children certainly are getting sick less often than adults. But what's also apparent and what we don't have enough information about yet is, is just the thing of how often children can get an infection but not be really sick with it. And by that, I mean you might have the virus in your system. And if you have the virus in your system, you can potentially transmit it to others. And that's what we just don't understand so much yet. There's emerging information to suggest um, that for sure children can have the virus in their systems, in their respiratory passages, in the same amount as adults do, and probably be just as contagious but not get sick themselves. Right. And so it's it's certainly an important question, I guess, if we look then to what uh, school looks like, what other activities look like, that, that certainly that's, that's going to have to guide our decisions, isn't it? For sure. And I think, you know, my own view on this, based on all the information and, and thinking of this, is that we have to be careful about not being too glib or too hasty to say, well, yeah. children don't get sick very often, let's just send them back to school. There are, are a lot of... Um, complicating, confounding issues to consider related to this. Right. And I mean, obviously, look, there, there are kids who, who are asthmatic, uh, kids who are diabetic. I mean, you know, so there are certainly kids that do have what we refer to as these underlying conditions. And that's obviously something we, we need to be very careful about, isn't it? 
Yes, so that's first and foremost, is this, because, the, the, you know, when people say that children never get sick, well, that's simply not true that children never get sick. Children don't get sick nearly as often as adults, fortunately, but they can, and certainly children with underlying health conditions, such as you mentioned, are at increased risk of getting sick. And related to that is there are adults in every child's life and, uh, and young children. And so parents, grandparents, teachers, school bus drivers, um, uh, uh, school custodial workers, uh, all kinds of folks that children come in contact with in the course of a routine day coming and going and, and, and being at school um, who are at risk if, uh, uh, of having much worse disease if they were to pick it up from a child. Right. You know, and obviously, well, government's got to factor in practical considerations, too. I mean, if people are starting to go back to work, um, you know, what do we do with the kids? And as you say, if that means having grandma and grandpa babysit, well, then we're we're still left with these these potential challenges. So uh, that that factors into all of this as well. The, The question, though, of how school can change, how it can be modified, you know, we look to countries, I mean, Taiwan, South Korea, yeah. Where kids wear masks, there's supervised hand washing, there's restrictions on activities. Does, does it seem likely then that this is the kind of thing maybe we'll, we'll have to incorporate? Yeah, I think the important thing is, is again, not to be just too, too uh, glib about it. Certainly children have to get back to school. It's uh, not just uh, to support their families, but for children it's, as well. School mm-hmm. is generally a safe place to be and is an important, hugely important part of their growth and development. So, you know, everybody wants children to get back to school, and I certainly strongly support that. I think what the, um, uh, the education minister, uh, Lagrange, uh, laid out today, the three possibilities are actually quite reasonable to consider. You know, the first is that kids might return to school normal operations at the one end, and at the other end, continue as as things are now indefinitely into the fall. I think either of those is is improbable, and I think it's likely it'll be the middle road of returning to school with some or some cautions. Children must not go to school if they're sick themselves. Um, and um, or somebody at home is sick, uh, and much more so than usual. And then the thing is at school, what to do, how to get to school, how to minimize risks on the way to school and back. Um, you know, will school buses be uh, expected to be uh, less full? Um, will um, parents be expected to try to get their children to school, not on school buses if possible? Um, and um, uh, uh, children, parents should minimize the time they spend at the school, the number of children in the class, perhaps spreading out uh, uh, the class time and maybe not being at school as many days of the week and so you can uh, spread things out and have some distance. Of course, for young children, it's quite impossible to think that we can socially distance children all day at school. But there are these considerations of how to spread things out, how to minimize risks, likely reduce you know some extracurricular activities and and, and large group gatherings and things. I think think that there's a, a practical um, middle ground that can be common sense and um, help be safer um, to get uh, the schools back up and going that isn't just open them up wide again versus not open them at all. There's, there's a middle ground there. and There's some practical um, uh, hints of how this can happen that are coming from other countries that are ahead of us. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting, too, because... And I suspect a lot of what we're doing what might reduce the number of colds and flus that we see once we get mm-hmm. into the fall and winter, but th- those will still be there, and so we'll have yeah. those issues as well. I-, I guess in knowing what we're dealing with, it's sort of that broader picture of, you know, how much testing we're doing and, and knowing yes. what's what's going on in the community and 
that that's going to be a big part of, of managing all of this, isn't it? A, a, a hugely key thing, and I think that, you know, there's so much noise that comes south of the border, and I think we should just turn all that off because it really is noise and unhelpful. Uh, the, 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 one of the most um, sort of heartening things in terms of news in Alberta this week, well, the two things. One is the reduction in cases that seems to be really with us now. And second is this announcement of a dramatic increase in the amount of testing, the doubling of the testing that can be done. We're already doing more testing than almost any place in the world. And the commitment um, in Alberta to do even more testing as we start to open up is such a key component of managing this testing and still doing case uh, uh, contacting and trying to understand where the case is from and follow up contacts in the cases. By doing those two things and making sure our hospitals are well equipped, then we'll be in very good shape to manage this going forward. If you let up on the testing and uh, let up on the ability to follow up contacts, then you're just going to be back to not knowing what's going on. And, uh, and uh, so I think that, um, yes, I can completely agree that's such a key part of it going forward, including children. All right. We'll, we'll leave it there. Dr. Kellner, thanks so much for your insight on this. Appreciate you making some time for us here. Thank you. Take care. You as well. Uh, that's Dr. Uh, Jim Kellner, the University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine. He's a pediatrician, uh, also a subspecialist in pediatric infectious disease, is professor and head of the Department of Pediatrics uh, at the Cummings School of Medicine. So his thoughts on, you know, the importance of getting kids back to school and, and how we do so smartly. And he's probably right. It's, it's most likely to be kind of a modified return to school. Uh, maybe you have smaller classes. Maybe you don't have assemblies. You know, maybe the recess looks a little bit different. Um, you know, these kinds of things that, that's probably manageable, right? And, but obviously we need to let the, the science guide us and obviously the situation on the ground, as it were, and that's, that's going to impact a lot of this. And that gets back to the point of testing. And yeah, there was such an important announcement yesterday. We've got, uh, you know, a new investment. We're expanding our testing capabilities. So I think that positions us well, uh, you know, to keep moving forward on these issues. I think we see school as pretty fundamental. And, you know, let's, we certainly, I think, want to get kids back to school, but how do we do so safely? So we'll get to that coming after three o'clock. But this conversation is certainly along those, those lines. But I don't know, can you make the argument that youth sports and hockey in particular, as much of a Canadian tradition as it is, is it on the same level of importance as school? And we can probably figure out ways to, to get kids back to school, you know, maybe with some, some changes, some modification. But, you know, the game of hockey is, well, it's the game of hockey. I mean, it is what it is. And... Are we going to have a hockey season coming up this year? That's a big question in our household here, one my son's very much interested in. I mean, I suspect in all likelihood we will, but maybe it's going to look a lot different. So there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously, a lot of conversations going on with minor hockey associations right across the country, uh, certainly Hockey Canada and Hockey Alberta and its various provincial cousins. There's a really interesting article today up at theathletic.com on those conversations and uh, what a, an altered hockey season, a modified hockey season might look like under these uh, current circumstances. Joining us to talk more about it, the author of that piece, uh, Sean Fitzgerald, is a senior national writer for The Athletic. He's also author of the book, Before the Lights Go Out, great look at the state of minor hockey in Canada. Sean, good to talk to you again here. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So let me ask you first of all, maybe you can quantify it if you want, 50-50, 60-40, 70-30. Is there going to be hockey this coming year? 
So just before we clarify those odds, can I just clarify another point? With whose <laughs> sure. funds are we placing this wager? Your funds? Yeah, well, I don't am, know. I, am I betting? Well, I want to know what the odds here? are first. Yeah. <laughs> am I betting with house money? Um, yeah, I think the really short answer is nobody knows. I mean, Hockey Canada doesn't know for sure. Um, none of the provincial stakeholders know for sure. Um, there's a there's a private uh, group in British Columbia um, that just today, I believe it's in Burnaby, uh, was given clearance to its private ice, but to reopen its ice. But there were very strict conditions. It, it's not anything that's going to look like hockey. It's I have to go back and double check, but it's something like a cap of you know no more than four players and one coach allowed on the ice at, at the same time. Now. I mean, this is this is here in May. Who knows what it'll look like in September, October? But I mean, I think that's what a lot of hockey families might have to get used to. That if there is going to be hockey this fall, and at this point it is just an if, um, there's a very good chance that it will look a lot different than the way we're used to hockey looking. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a story I saw the other day. Uh, Bauer and, and Bauer's been doing a lot of work, uh, you know, in, in building personal protective equipment because you know they can shift what they do relatively easily. But you know, where these two things kind of meet, the Bauer's uh, you know proposing this idea, and I don't know what it would look like, but of a modified kind of hockey face shield that would almost function like a medical kind of face shield is is a way of you know keeping participants safe. And I mean, it kind of got me thinking, right? I mean. You know, there may have to be a lot of changes. It might even come down to to what kind of equipment kids are wearing. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I like the idea, or at least the concept as a talking point. I'm not sure how practical it would be. I mean, you know, when I play in my terrible beer league, I do wear the fishbowl, and that's that's not the wire, but that's that's the full fishbowl. Because, you know, when when you move as quickly on the ice as I do, every split second of extra (laughs) vision counts. It's like a finely tuned machine. Um, But there's, you know... 550,000 youth players. So are we saying that, you know, the decision to go back to play will be made in August and and by September, October, we're going to be able to fit 550,000 children with these new face shields? I'm not sure that's that's going to be the one that really sets us over. But, I mean, there's everything on the table. I spoke with, you know, minor hockey executives from, you know, Langley to New Brunswick and points in between. And yeah, everything is on the table. The idea of, you know, minor hockey, maybe parents aren't allowed in the stands because if we're still looking at caps of, I don't know, say 50 people in a room at the same time, you know, with two teams, coaches and officials, you get to that 50 number pretty quick. So maybe parents wait in the car, Um, you know, kids uh, getting dressed at home and then walking into the rink and just tying their skates, going onto the ice and going back that, no pregame or postgame talk that maybe lobbies, you know, the, the great congregation that so many Canadians know every Saturday and Sunday and frankly every day of the week now, maybe those are off limits that, you know, maybe the emergency doors that are in all these arenas that one team will go in one way, one team will go in the other and never the twain shall meet in between other than on the ice. And then, you know, the other big one would be that, you know, there's, there's no pre or postgame talks with the coach and, and, and no travel and, and maybe no tournaments and maybe it's three on three or four on four. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because my kid's at the age where, you know, I, I drop him off and he goes in and, you know, he, he does all of that, right? I don't have to go in and tie skates, but I remember the time when I did, and so did every other dad or mom. And so not only do you have, you know, 15 to 20 kids in a dressing room, now you got 15 to 20 adults in the room all, all tying skates, plus you got the coaches in there. I mean, that, that, there's no way that's feasible, even if, even if there is hockey. That, that, you know, it can't be like that. Well, even, even when it's not a pandemic, 
um, you know, even before COVID-19, hockey dressing rooms and that, you know, that area in front of the bench where the kids sit, like, those might be two of the most disgusting places on earth. And, mm-hmm. and I don't have a degree in microbiology, but there is no way I'm getting an ultraviolet light and putting it over those floors in the best of times, right? Like, yeah. just, just don't even think about it. It'll keep you up at night. So yeah, now, now with, with the pandemic, all of these things have to be, you have to be, keenly aware of them that you know do you stagger ice rentals so you know your your little kid is on the ice at nine for a game or a practice and then they're off at 10 and the next team goes on right after the flood that's the way that's the rhythm of canadian life right well mm-hmm. well maybe now you need a half hour so that you know the zamboni does flood and then arena workers can go and spritz and spray and scrub wherever they have to scrub wherever you know the little disease vectors have been playing hockey yeah. and and fix that and and maybe that you know, halves, or at least certainly cuts into the amount of ice that a minor hockey association might have. There's also the question of insurance, right? And maybe at the end of the day, though, that'll be the deciding factor if insurance companies decide that there, there's too much risk. I, I don't know how you get around that. Well, and that's a Hockey Canada issue. That's why, I mean, there is a chain of command so that, you know, yeah. the minor hockey association executives in Calgary and in, in Red Deer and in, in Regina, everywhere, that, you know, you play hockey, that's fine, but they're all in a holding pattern because they're waiting to hear from the provincial bodies. And the provincial bodies are waiting to hear from the national body. But guess what? The national body can't move ahead until it gets the go-ahead from public health and government officials. And, and Hockey Canada is the one that holds the cards for sanctioned play because it has the insurance policy. So that will be something that you know, has to unfold at, at Hockey Canada HQ in Calgary. There's an interesting component in all of this, and I think it overlaps with the the whole question of schools, right? And trying to understand, you know, the the interaction between kids and this virus. Fortunately, kids don't seem hard hit by this, but we really don't know if if they can pass it on to others, if they're bringing it home to their moms and dads or their grandparents. Um, You know, so maybe the conversation is more about protecting adults, and that's easier to do, keep adults out of the building or force them to wear masks. If it's about protecting the kids, that that changes the dynamic in a lot of ways, I think. And so a lot of this conversation might hinge on a better understanding of that question, don't you think? Well, that I mean, the hockey and school relationship, it's a a really popular meme that circulates among hockey families, which is school is important, but hockey is importanter. (laughs) Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about you know this corona, novel coronavirus and COVID nineteen is that I mean you don't have to do a lot of reading to find out that you know there's still a lot of active science going on. People are still learning. That the New York Times this week had a, a series of stories about um, strange sort of inflammation that's found in children who had been diagnosed with COVID-19, Kawasaki disease, which is a nasty piece of work that, you know, we're still figuring out that, you know, it's a small percentage, but, you know, there are still potentially really nasty outcomes for for children with this. It's not, it's not always the demographic that we read about as this thing sort of crept into our consciousness in February, March, and now whatever month it is today, I have no idea. But um, so there's still a lot to sort of be, be gleaned from, from who's really at risk here. It seems like, you know, we all are. And then that kind of worst-case scenario where we just decide there's too much risk, we got to shelve hockey for a year. 
you know, the, the fallout from that, I mean, even you, you look at the elite development, I mean, if there's no junior hockey, if there's no midget hockey, if there's no bantam hockey, how that, that affects all of these upper echelon teams, even affecting, uh, you know, the, the pro teams to, to some extent. And, you know, just the question of kids' physical activity, just the, you know, the mental and emotional toll of, of losing out on that. I mean, you know, these, these are all big things to consider. Well, yeah, it kind of makes me, in retrospect, maybe wish that I hadn't picked such a literal title for the book before the lights go out. No, turned out when it was launched in October, it was just before they all went dark. Yeah, like it's not hyperbole. We're we're not we're not at risk of hyperbole in saying that this could change the landscape for not just hockey but youth sports in Canada. You know, for a long time, that there are going to be minor hockey associations, youth soccer associations, baseball, mm-hmm. you name it, lacrosse. Um, that aren't going to be able to make it through this, that, you know, without the revenue of, you know, registration fees, um, without, you know, the regular sort of access to, again, the rhythms of regular sports life, there are going to be groups and play formats that aren't going to emerge from this whenever we do emerge with a vaccine or treatment or whatever is going to help us out of this. There's going to be a lot of changes in the way that minor sports are delivered and administered. Absolutely. Well, much more is mentioned at theathletic.com. And uh, the book, as you mentioned before the lights go out, a season inside a game on the brink. Sean, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Good talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Uh, that is Sean Fitzgerald. He's a senior uh, writer with The Athletic, theathletic.com. And as mentioned, uh, his book, An Interesting Look at the State of Minor Hockey, called Before the Lights Go Out. It was obviously written before this whole situation, and this obviously adds a lot more uncertainty to it. I think, my my sense is that there's going to be every attempt made to figure out how to proceed with youth sports. It's probably, unfortunately, going to be too late to to save the soccer season or save the baseball season here. Uh, But looking ahead to the fall, and not just hockey. I mean, obviously, as Canadians, we're going to put hockey on a pedestal. But, you know, there are a lot of other activities that kids are engaged in. You know, other sports that that run through, through the winter. Kids play indoor soccer. Kids play basketball. Um, you know, kids are involved in dance and gymnastics and all of these kinds of things. So it, it, it's all sort of that, that, you know, in the same conversation. I think there's going to be every attempt made uh, to figure out ways of allowing that to go ahead. Recognizing all the potential fallout from having to, to just not go ahead with all of these things. And we're just going to keep kids locked in their homes all winter long. That's, you know, that's not feasible. So I, my sense is that there's going to be a focus on, okay, how do we do this? What, what needs to be done? And what, what's our starting point? What are we dealing with right now? If you look at Alberta's relaunch plan, there wasn't a lot of talk on sports necessarily. But they did mention arenas. Arenas, and that would go hand in hand with, you know, swimming pools and those sorts of things. That's not until stage three. Right? So even the Alberta government sees that there's a lot of progress we got to make before we get to that point. And maybe it all times out. I mean, hockey's lucky in a way that even though it kind of short-circuited some, some playoffs, more or less, there was a full hockey season. This is the off-season. Everything goes well. The next season will occur and no disruption. And so, for, you know, maybe we'll luck out that way. That we'll get through stage one and two here in Alberta. We'll be into stage three in the fall and just in time to open the arenas back up and everything's hunky-dory. But there's a lot of in-between in between hockey uh, business as usual and no hockey. And so that's some of what Sean's article goes through is, you know, maybe there's, you know, eliminating as much travel as possible. 
Um, maybe it means even changing, you know, the, the size of the teams, the number of kids on the ice at, at any one time. Or, as he said, little things like you get dressed at home and you show up in your equipment. You know, there's no tournaments. Maybe it does change the equipment. Maybe this idea of the Bauer face shield, uh, maybe that becomes mandatory. It'd be great for Bauer's bottom line. But look, if that's the price of having a hockey season, then now you got to shell out another whatever it is, 75 bucks for this Bauer face shield. Probably a lot of hockey parents would say, well, that's better than not having hockey. But it's going to mean some tough decisions, potentially. Now, as the weather has started to improve, and you know, it's obviously going to have its ups and downs. Uh, that's, that's what spring is like here. But, you know, we've had some decent weather as of late, and we've certainly seen a lot more people outside. Uh, and, and certainly our, our understanding, our evolving understanding uh, of this virus is that this is a good thing. We, we want people to be outside. There's still going to be a need for, you know, some physical distancing uh, in some measures that, that, you know, provide some, some separation between people. But when it comes to indoor versus outdoor risk, certainly what we've learned is that there is a lot more risk when it comes to indoor transmission. And obviously, you look at some of the uh, problematic outbreaks we've had here in Alberta, meatpacking plants, long-term and continuing care. And we know the stories about, uh, you know, cruise ships and, and other settings. But, you know, at the same time, too, I mean, certainly big part of uh, big part of the story in, in northern Italy, it appears, was uh, potentially this, this soccer game that occurred in late February. Uh, so certainly there there are the kinds of outdoor events where you still have that risk. But by and large, it, it appears that we want people to go outside. And so the public health messaging is starting to shift in that direction, away from stay in your homes to get outside and, and try to be safe while doing so. so. Joining us to talk a bit more uh, about uh, all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Stan Houston. Uh, he's an infectious disease specialist and a professor of medicine, University of Alberta in Edmonton. Dr. Houston, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Okay. Good afternoon, uh, everybody down south. Yes, well, I uh, appreciate making some time for us here. So let me get your thoughts. It, it, it certainly does seem that there is that, that growing body of evidence that there's, there's less risk, not no risk, but less risk when it comes to being outdoors. Why, why is that? Yeah, well, uh, first, first of all, it kind of, it kind of makes sense. There's uh, an infinite volume of uh, air in which the, the, uh, any particles, viral or smoke or anything else, can be dispersed uh, and, and uh, diluted. And there's always some, there's always some air current and air movement that's more than, uh, than, than indoors. So, uh, and uh, on top of that, uh, ultraviolet light from the sun and in, in, uh, in the outdoor situation uh, is uh, very effective at killing viruses and other organisms like TB as well. So, so you'd kind of expect it would be much safer. Uh, and all the experience and evidence uh, in, indicates that, that it is much safer. All, almost all the big outbreaks as as you've already alluded to are uh in uh occurring in enclosed spaces uh and um again as you as you mentioned uh it's possible to if you're foolish enough or careless enough 
to put yourself uh, at risk, even even outdoors, by very close contra- uh, contact with someone who's particularly well, someone who's infectious, particularly if they're if they're coughing. Um, uh, but also, also one can imagine uh, outdoor settings, perhaps uh, uh, a heavily used uh, play area for kids, outdoor playground where all the kids are snuffling on and on uh, playground equipment. And so we know you can you you can pick up the virus by by hand in that way. Yes. So with those few and fairly specific exceptions. Um, you're safer outdoors. And, and as I say, I think the, the messaging is starting to change. Certainly Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health and CBC's Officer, Medical Officer of Health, there's really been an emphasis on that, that, you know, that, that there, there are still measures we need to take to, to keep ourselves safe, but that certainly we should be getting outside. Is it your sense that that, that, that message is being conveyed? I, I think uh, I think it's coming out. Uh, I think there was some very confusing uh, or misunderstood messaging yeah. from di- different places uh, in the past, and in fact, some uh, what, in my view, was inf- uh, unfortunate enforcement of uh, not entirely logical rules. Maybe that more down in um, uh, down, down down east. Right. Um, but but I think uh, I think the more appropriate message is is getting out there now. And as you say, I mean, you know, when it comes to surfaces, and, and that might still pose some risk for playgrounds, but otherwise, that that should we be looking at at making outdoor spaces uh, open and and accessible to the public? Yeah, absolutely. The more, the better. Uh, do you think as well, I mean, you know, there's there's going to be some issues as we move forward and a lot of talk about how restaurants can safely reopen. Do you think even when it comes to those kinds of activities that if we can get people being outside, dining outside, expand patios, I mean, is it, does this kind of conversation uh, apply there, do you think? I think so. Um, so uh, attention to to spacing will, will re- remain important. Uh, and I suppose some spaces might be better ventilated than uh, than others, but yeah, I I would be uh, ready to uh, eat out at a in a in a my my preference would be a patio rather than right. uh, indoors if um, if I were going out to dinner tonight. But in terms of bigger events outside, concerts or sporting events, you know, we're probably still a ways away from that then. I mean, I think the issue is that there are large numbers of people that uh, unavoidably get very close together um, right. and um, and uh, cough on each other and maybe are touching each other or touching common common um, articles or you know handrails. Uh, I think that's the issue. Yeah. Well, some important points uh, as we move forward here, Doctor Houston. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for your interest. Appreciate the input on this. Uh, Dr. Stan Houston, uh, University of Alberta Infectious Disease uh, Disease Specialist, Professor of Medicine. So as he says, right, I mean, you know, there's a growing body of evidence that that shows that there's, there's less risk when it comes to being outside, that there's advantages to being outside. We should be encouraging people to do so. 
But as he said, I mean, there's been some confusing messages along the way, what's okay and what's not, and even some, some arbitrary and unfortunate kind of enforcement, maybe more so in, in some parts of Ontario and Quebec than out here. But I think there, there's, there is still an onus on public health officials to make it clear, look, we want you to be outside, but here's some of the activities we still have problems with. So the idea of you know, having a big organized uh, softball tournament or something like that, there may still clearly be some issues with that. But, you know, like what they were doing in Toronto, they had a, there was a big park in Toronto that was closed off. They were worried that too many people were going to come look at the, the cherry blossoms. You know, that, that's overreach. Let's make public spaces available. And maybe that even, you know, includes beaches once we get into summer, right? So I, I think we need to recognize the benefits of people being outside. We should be encouraging that. And where there still needs to be some kind of distancing or public health measures, well, you know, I think we can still convey that to people. Uh, but as Dr. Houston points out, I mean, you know, the idea of going to a baseball game, going to a CFL game this summer, you know, it's hard to know what's going to happen, but it doesn't sound like we're going to see those kinds of events uh, over the next few months. So certainly in the short term, we're going to see in, in the weeks ahead, uh, the various stages of Alberta's relaunch strategy being implemented. And, and so hopefully in the short term, uh, that will mean a, an uptick in economic activity. Uh, that'll sort of be the beginning uh, of us uh, getting out of this. And uh, certainly a large amount uh, of the success of that depends on, on what happens with the virus. Uh, the bigger a problem it is, the more that's, that's going to hurt the economy. Uh, so certainly getting that under control is a big, a big part of, of being able to move forward. But looking longer term and, and how we really begin to see some, some sustained and meaningful economic growth, not just recovery, uh, but growth. Uh, beyond even where we were before this. Now, as you probably know, the Alberta government, uh, the premier has tasked uh, a number of uh, sharp minds to to sit on this economic recovery council. And their job, their role is to, you know, come up with some big, bold ideas as to, you know, how we really start to move Alberta's economy forward, maybe even how we start to transform the economy in some ways. So I think there's a real opportunity maybe coming out of this to kind of rethink what it is we do, to refocus maybe in some areas. And as a province, as a country, do things better. The uh, Calgary and Edmonton chambers uh, have teamed up to, to offer some thoughts to the Recovery Council on, on what this might all look like and what our priorities need to be as we sort of try to think big about you know, how we come out of this. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, some of these ideas and what this looks like. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Sandeep Lally, uh, CEO of the Calgary Chamber, calgarychamber.com. Uh, Sandeep, great to talk to you here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, as we look at, at the challenges Alberta faces, I mean, there's obviously the short-term challenges. There's there's kind of long-term, big-picture stuff. And I suppose this is more about focusing on, on the latter side of it, right? Sort of those bold ideas about, you know, where we are a, a year, five years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this Recovery Council was put together, it would have been put together regardless of being in the pandemic or not. So I think that's an important clarification as to to the task at hand for this council is looking at that mid and long term piece for for Alberta's economy and stabilization and you know further growth in revenue uh, diversification into the the province so for us it was really meaningful because we've been partnering with the Edmonton Chamber quite a bit 
and off, like on our provincial platform and other things. And so we thought, why not join here? Because the two largest cities with um, the majority of the jobs, what, what, what do we look like? What does it look like to build long-term sustainable jobs for Albertans? It's interesting, too, because part of this talks about our natural resource sector and, and where we can build on, on our strengths there, but also to address, you know, the, the, the environmental side. And, and too often it gets portrayed as, you know, one or the other or that it's one versus the other. But it's, this is an interesting approach outlined in this letter that, you know, we can really be leaders on, on both sides. Absolutely. You know, this is something that us as uh, the chambers, eight metro chambers, have been championing for the last two years is, we can develop our natural resources and work towards solving climate change through innovation. And that's why we say in our letter here to the Recovery Council, the key thing, one of the key things is to place innovation at the heart of everything we do. So really look at our base industries, energy, agriculture, geology, mining, forestry. There is so much innovation that's happening in there that we're not leveraging. And so how do we, you know, whether it's to decrease your operational costs uh, or it's to, you know, reduce your GHG emissions or to spin out other um, industries and other technologies that can apply to other base industries, that's really the heart of our growth for Alberta. And so trying to have that and conversation across the country is really what's given us license to, to make these kinds of bold statements and have other jurisdictions like, you know, Halifax, Toronto, Montreal, Quebec, um, Vancouver behind us in this and conversation to move our natural resource development and innovation forward. And there are different ways of doing that. And, and the, the letter outlines some of those, the idea of, of funding innovation directly, the idea of so-called super clusters. You know, there's a real focus as well on, on supporting post-secondary institutions and, and, and the role that they can play in all of this. So where, where do we begin on this? Yeah, we begin with what we have. So we do have a technology, um, you know, ecosystem that's very you know, it's not mature. And so that's where we need to go from startup to, to mid-sized companies to large companies. So let's double down in on the innovation that we have going here. Let's fund them. Let's continue with the corridor that we've developed on innovation between Edmonton and Calgary and really look to partner with other cities as well through the innovation networks that have been set up. And think about... How do we create jobs in those areas of people where they're working in the large companies in an innovation space? How do we create additional jobs that actually could, you know, leapfrog to some solutions towards um, creating more revenue and creating better, you know, financial health and households get the kitchen table back to a, a way that that is meaningful. So that that's really where we start in this in this conversation. And the other couple of points that we've got in our proposal is to strengthen internal trade. Look at our look beyond the Alberta border. It shouldn't be hard for us to to have commerce between our provinces, especially now as we come out of the pandemic. And then we've asked for, you know, reimagining that municipal provincial relationship. Like we really need to get our minds around what property tax is going to look like. Um, what is that funding model between the province to, to the cities so that we don't continue down this, you know, knee jerk approach to 
solving city problems and not having the province involved. Like, it doesn't make sense for, for our cities to grow that way. No, so you, you see that in, in changing that relationship uh, or evolving that relationship is, is a big part of, of this strategy. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we look at these things and you look at other jurisdictions where their economies, you know, have had to, to move and adjust and, and really want to take this opportunity, especially because of the fact that everybody is reimagining what, uh, you know, Alberta and Calgary could look like, is to say, let's see what the others have done and, and double in on collaboration with accountability with each other as opposed to competing between cities or competing between levels of government. Let's work together so that we can actually get policy that polar economy. And what a better time than now, you know, because of the fact that everybody is looking towards reimagining their customers and reimagining their business models. Yeah, indeed. And, and, you know, there's that big conversation that needs to happen. I mean, you know, we're, we're obviously focused on a lot of these short-term challenges on the public health side and, and getting the economy reopened. And, you know, maybe we're, we're neglecting some of these, these more longer-term challenges. But, you know, do, do you think now is the time that we, we do need to be having these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason we do now is because, first and foremost, we're in a public health crisis. And so we're going to take view from our public health officials to say this is what's happening. So let's trust them. They've got this in hand. We've all been, you know, in our lockdown and we're looking forward to coming back. But until we can get that public health piece sorted out and solved, which is post-vaccine, we can't not start, you know, we can't waste all that time. They're going to do what they're going to do. The you know, the scientists are going to figure out a vaccine. So as business and as citizens, what are we doing to look at the financial health of our households, creating sustainable jobs? So we should be focused on this stuff while they do that work. And so that's why the timing is is right, because if everyone is doing their pieces to move towards sustainable job creation in Alberta, then then we will get there as the, as we get into a post-vaccine um environment well people can read this uh, for themselves it's up at calgarychamber.com uh sandeep thank you so much for joining us here today appreciate this yeah no thanks for having us i would just say um the other piece of this is to to ensure that we have all the voices at the table so that's why you know having post-secondary there having civil society and our citizens voice uh, and having that um the policy over politics piece I really would encourage, you know, your listeners to, to get involved in the conversation because this is how you will cre- help create the Alberta that you want to be living in and the job, sustainable jobs that you want. Absolutely. Sandeep, all the best. Thanks again. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Sandeep Lally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, calgarychamber.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.